0: Happy Thursday, everybody. Welcome back to the second season of an old show and the first season of a new show, The Last Symptom. I'm glad to have you here. My name's Brian Barnett, and I'm the creator and host. How's your week treating you? Myself, I'm back home for a few days after my recent trip, and I'm trying to catch up on so many things before another weekend gets here. Have you been enjoying your summers, depending on where you're at? I I realize not all of you live within the same bubble of reality as I do. (laughs) And uh, the reality might be that you're in the middle of winter. Well, whatever the case, I hope you're making the best of whatever season it is that you're currently dealing with. I typically tell people that uh, I love all of the seasons equally. And you know, this was not always the case. I used to love summer exclusively. But you know, when I come to think about this five or six years ago, it dawned on me that with this attitude, I was going to one day look in the mirror and an old man near the end of his life who had needlessly undervalued Precisely 75% of the days he had been given. What a waste, right? So I chose then, I chose that I was going to start seeing the other three seasons, not as inferior to summer, but as equal to help me with this. I began making it a point to get out and immerse myself In all of the seasons, as a year-round wilderness backpacker, this meant planning long, multi-day and multi-night backpacking trips in the wilderness for each season. Getting out there and getting my nose right into it. And do you know that it worked? It really worked. I now love and get excited for each season equally. And you know, it's a lot of fun. Shopping for season specific equipment or clothing, or learning how to deal with the different elements that I deal with when I'm out there in the wilderness temperatures and the different things like snow and rain and sleet or uh, unbearable heat. Among woodsmen, there's a saying there's no such thing as bad weather, there's only being improperly dressed. The irony now is that as I get older, and uh, those of you who have listened to past shows know this, it's actually summer that I have a harder time appreciating. Isn't that something? (laughs) What I'm describing here was my ability to choose how I was going to think about a thing. Think about that for a minute. My ability to choose how... I was going to think about a thing. And in this case, it was the seasons, of course. And now, I don't just pretend to like all the seasons. I genuinely do love all of the seasons. So what this means is that I enjoy life all year round, rather than just three months of it. Do you have this capability? Sure you do. You get to choose whether or not you will be optimistic about achieving genuine emotional health, or if it's going to be burdensome to you and depressing. You have the capability, in many cases, to stop when your day's going bad and say, Wait a second. Wait just a second. Perhaps the day is not really that gloomy and bad. But maybe my own thoughts are interpreting it that way. What can I do to put a positive spin on all this? You know, I remember my mom once, when I was a little boy. She was driving me and my brother somewhere deep on the back roads out in the country. And we got lost. Totally lost. Now, remember, this is before GPS, and of course, we didn't have a map Because country people don't use maps. (laughs) You know, we turn left at the tree and right at the the hill. (laughs) We direct ourselves by some sort of internal guidance system. You know, we sniff the air, lick our finger, and we hold it up to the wind, and we speak to the birds, things of this nature. Well, on this day, the birds had told us wrong, and we got totally lost. And I'll never forget that my mom, who was usually a pretty anxious person, on this day, for some reason, was not anxious at all. It's burned into my memory that as my brother and I were going into hysterics about being lost out in the middle of back-ass nowhere, my mom very calmly said, You know what? This can be an adventure. Let's have some fun. When she said that, my brother and I started looking around And realizing that we were seeing trees and roads and mountains and fields and creeks that we'd never seen before and might never see again. And what could be around the next curve? Who knew? It was a wonderful chance for an adventure. Boy, the power of the mind, right? You have this power too. Never forget it. Well, let's get into our discussion today. We're going to talk about romance and love because that's a topic that uh, people never get tired of. What is my advice on romance while also being interested and involved in achieving authentic recovery? My firm policy is this. Genuine recovery from an emotional disorder should be done while you are single if you have a choice in the matter. Why do I say if you have a choice in the matter? Well, people who are already married are excluded from this policy. <laughs> you know, they've already made a commitment. They made a commitment, and uh, and that commitment is worth fighting for. Interestingly, each person in a marriage still has to individually do their recovering on their own. That's why I don't believe in marriage counseling because marriage counseling seems like a good idea but it's misplaced the the intentions are misplaced because if you got one person who's emotionally unhealthy and you got a second person who's emotionally unhealthy it doesn't matter the marriage tools and tricks that you you teach them it means those tricks are always going to fail they're always going to fail in a marriage when you when you got two unhealthy people the path to success, to having a healthy marriage, is that both individuals, the husband and the wife, both focus individually on themselves. Let me, let me say it so that there's no confusion whatsoever. The husband focuses entirely on himself, on what's wrong with his perceptions and thoughts and fundamental beliefs the wife focuses entirely on herself, her erroneous perceptions and fundamental beliefs. Because the husband can't fix the wife's erroneous perceptions and fundamental beliefs, and the wife can't fix the husband's erroneous perceptions and fundamental beliefs. Only they, as individuals, can do this for themselves. If both are committed to doing this for themselves, without finger-pointing, without trying to fix the other person or without trying to get them to act, but instead focuses their full attention within themselves. If both do this, then there's a real good chance that that marriage could become emotionally healthy. But what doesn't work is when they go as a couple to some counselor And the counselor treats them as if they're one person. (laughs) You do this and do that and do this to have a healthier marriage. Well, the problem there is that individually they're not healthy. You can't have a healthy marriage and have two emotionally unhealthy individuals. (laughs) You're describing an impossibility there. The only answer is for people to focus on themselves, even within a marriage. But... Back to the point. People who are already married are excluded from my policy that if you're interested in recovering from an emotional disorder, you should stay single while you're doing that. I know that folks who are in a committed dating relationship view that relationship as a concrete commitment that you can't simply walk away from all willy-nilly. But you're wrong. Dating is not marriage. The entire purpose of dating... The entire purpose of it is to determine if you should spend your life with that person or not. Dating, in and of itself, is not a commitment to do so. I don't think people make the distinction between dating and marriage in today's modern world. But, you know, there is a distinction. Dating is not marriage. Marriage is a permanent Long-term commitment, will you be my boyfriend, is not a permanent commitment. It's a commitment, but it's not a permanent commitment. Boyfriends and girlfriends are still testing the waters to see if the relationship has the possibility of harmony and longevity. Nobody ever died for being single for a couple years. I was talking to my niece Last night, actually, I bumped into my niece. Uh, She's 21 years old. She has a baby. She's divorced. She got married. Guess how long she was married for? Six months. Ended up divorced. And I said, well, you got a ring on your finger. (laughs) If you're divorced, how come you got that ring on your finger? She says, oh, well, I'm engaged engaged to be married again at 21 already divorced has a baby engaged again to get married i said well it's your life she said yeah i said but why would you do that what's the hurry i mean why (laughs) i don't understand it help me understand and uh she laughed and, you know, it's just what she wants to do. You know, she's got her life. I got mine. I don't, you know, I got plenty of uh, my own mistakes that I had to make. And I've got plenty of my, my own faults right now that I've got to focus on my for myself. So, you know, I don't step outside of my circle in the sand and involve myself with other people's lives. I recognize and respect their inherent rights responsibility and authority over their own lives. I wouldn't do it. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I think it's crazy that she's doing it. But, you know, it's her life. But ask yourself, you know, get in the habit of asking yourself, why do I feel like I have to do this? What's the hurry? Nobody ever died for being single for a couple of years. I know it goes against everything you see on TV and in the movies, but nobody ever died for being single for a couple of years. People who are single can be very happy, can be happier, actually, than being in a relationship. You know, you're really getting to know yourself. You're getting to do things that married people or people who are caught up in relationships don't get to do. But here's the point. Nothing is more valuable than, than achieving emotional health. Nothing is more valuable than achieving emotional health. Emotionally unhealthy people don't get into committed relationships and voila, find genuine happiness. Remember we talked not long ago about external things versus inner things. Emotionally unhealthy people are not going to find happiness by some external thing. No, the only thing they find is intensified frustration and pain. And at the risk of sounding like I'm your dad, save yourself from this pain. And listen to me on this one. My strong recommendation is this. Spend a couple of years focused on your recovery as a single person. Because you can't trust any of your heart's desires or conclusions as an emotionally unhealthy person. This means that what you're feeling cannot be trusted as reliable data for basing major decisions on, nor can your evaluation of the other person be fully trusted. You're setting yourself up for great pain because as as I've explained in the past, emotionally unhealthy people, what pool do they have to choose from? Only the emotionally unhealthy pool. The person you're going to end up with is going to be emotionally unhealthy. On the contrary, emotionally healthy people, what pool of people do they have to choose from? Of partners do they have to choose from? Emotionally healthy partners. What happens when you get two emotionally healthy people together in a committed relationship? You have a healthy relationship it's just the way it works emotionally healthy people don't get into committed relationships with emotionally unhealthy people now having said all this while you're choosing to stay single so that you can focus on your emotional health and therefore have the best opportunities in the future to be with somebody else who's emotionally healthy in the meantime while you're doing this work Stay social. Get out. Enjoy the company of the opposite sex. But do not get into a committed relationship without first having reached a measure of genuine emotional health yourself. If you're already in a boyfriend-girlfriend-betrothed relationship, consider breaking it off. Nobody who ever put their emotional health first in a genuine way has ever died from doing this. And folks, you already know the odds you're working against, so why make it harder? You're working against the odds of escaping emotional unhealth and becoming something you've never been before, which is an emotionally healthy person. You're also working against the odds of the divorce rate, which is something like, you know, a person gets divorced in the United States every... 20 seconds or something like that. I Don't quote me on that. I don't know what it is, but actually I'll tell you what it is. I'm going to look it up. Yeah, here we go. 50% of all marriages in the United States will end in divorce or separation. 60% of second marriages end in divorce. 73% of all third marriages end in divorce. Reminds me of uh, I was talking to a a brain surgeon one time, an, uh, an expert in traumatic brain injury. I said, "What is the greatest determining factor for traumatic brain injury? In other words, what puts a person at the greatest risk of having an accident where he has, where he or she will suffer a traumatic brain injury?" You wouldn't believe the answer the specialist in traumatic brain injury told me that the the number one greatest risk factor for traumatic brain injury is if you've already had a traumatic brain injury. Do you know why that is? Because people's lifestyles don't change. Whatever dumb thing the person was doing in the first place to get a traumatic brain injury, that's still the type of life he's living or she still taking chances like that and doing foolish things <laughs> isn't that crazy that's what this reminds me of 50% of all marriages end in divorce 60% of second marriages end in divorce and 73% of all third marriages end in divorce why do you think that number's climbing because the people who got into the first marriage were unhealthy They got out of that marriage. They didn't fix the problem, which was their emotional unhealth. So they get married again. Sure enough, that marriage ends in divorce. Well, they're going to try a third time. Have they fixed the problem? Nope. Because they think they're just with the wrong person. They got with the wrong person, and that was the problem. But it wasn't the problem, was it? The real problem was that they were emotionally unhealthy to begin with. So they're only choosing a other emotionally unhealthy people, two emotionally unhealthy people getting married, and thinking each time's going to be different, and you can see from the statistics that that's not that's not how it goes. So you're working against the odds of trying to escape emotional unhealth, which you can do, by the way, and you're gonna do, but you're also working against the odds of an already very high divorce rate. So, why make it harder? You know, this requires some honesty with oneself that, frankly, a lot of people won't have the strength to follow through on because they're just going to listen to their emotions and, uh, and do whatever their emotions tell them to do uh, to their own detriment. After my divorce, I did a lot of playing around, but I always made it clear that getting into a committed relationship was out of the question as long as I was working on my recovery. And you'd be amazed at the number of people who will respect and appreciate this about you. It's just plain smart. And if they don't respect it, you know, I dealt with a lot of those too, that's because they're dealing with their own emotional unhealth. And that's for them to figure out. But at least you were perfectly honest up front. And you can't be accused of leading anybody on. Uh, There was one woman who uh, I met in a bar I was in the bar watching a baseball game. She came in with her friends, and they all saddled up next to me at the bar, got to talking to me, and uh, actually it was one of her friends who I thought I was going to go home with that night. They all invited me over to their place, to one of their apartments, after we had been at the bar for a while. And I said, sure, uh, let's go. So I went over there. It was actually the one who was uh, treating me the coldest at the bar, the one who was kind of ignoring me who uh, at some point grabbed me, whipped me around the corner into another room, and said, take me home. And the next morning she said, Brian, I don't want to get into any relationships. I don't want to, you know, I'm not going to be your girlfriend. I don't want to get into anything. I said, okay. She said, no, I'm serious. I, I don't want to get into anything committed. I said, yeah, okay. Okay. <laughs> Because at the time, I I wasn't going to get into anything committed. I was focused on my recovery. And uh, I don't think she knew just how serious I was when I was saying okay. (laughs) Maybe she was a little uh, bruised that uh, I wasn't putting up more of an argument. (laughs) I don't know what it was. But anyway, she the next day, come back to my apartment, and we had our little tryst. And the next day she came back to my apartment. We had our little tryst and she kept coming back. It got to a point where she was she was almost begging me to be in a committed relationship with her. And I said, "Do you not remember the very first day you were at my apartment that next morning? We had this discussion. You said you didn't want to be in any committed relationships." And I said, "Okay. So, who can understand the heart of a woman?" Well, <laughs> Women, I reckon, <laughs> can. But uh, I'll never forget that. She had explicitly said she didn't want to get into a committed relationship, and it weren't three weeks later. She had totally changed her mind. You know, it got to a point where she kind of was accusing me, like I had let her on. I No, I did not lead you on. I made it very clear. You made it very clear that we weren't going to make this a committed relationship type of thing. So be upfront with people. You know, even if they later accuse you of leading them on, at least you've got that, that dignity inside yourself, that you were perfectly honest up front with them. And uh, even if they're accusing you of leading them on, you know it's not true. Now, remember, my advice has nothing to do with good or bad, right or wrong. That's your responsibility to figure out, not mine. I'm not giving you a moral lesson here. I'm giving you strictly and only a lesson about emotional health and your recovery It's not unusual for many things which can be classified as not emotionally unhealthy to at the same time be classified as morally wrong. To some, this may seem like a contradictory statement on the surface, but it's not. And, uh, you know, you might want to listen to my other episodes where I get into the details of some of those things. During the years that I was doing the most fooling around, Having the most sex, let's not talk in riddles here. During the years that I was having the most sex with the most people, I frankly just did not care about concepts of morality one way or another. You know, at the time I had more immediate, bigger fish to fry from my point of view, specifically figuring out how to get rid of an emotional disorder that had always had almost total control over me. Now that I've achieved emotional health, morality is something that I'm able to think more clearly on. So it's kind of like one thing at a time type of deal, you know? You can't do it all at once. So only you are responsible for caring or not caring about morality. I recognize because of my personal experience there that when the heart is hurting, And dramatic life events have taken place that a broken person may first have to heal a bit from that before principles of morality can become a thing that they're reasonably able to genuinely care about. My only interest here is in speaking to you in terms of emotional health. I want to help you get emotionally healthy so that then you're able to approach other considerations with a clear mind and a stable heart. Incidentally, with the exception of maybe one or two of my relationships from that time, I remain close friends with nearly every woman that I had a relationship with from that period. And I have great respect for them, and they seem to have respect for me. There are some residual wishes that maybe things could have evolved into something more permanent with several of those girls, but do I regret putting my recovery first? Not at all. Now, let's talk about genuine love for a little bit. Can a person who is emotionally unhealthy experience genuine love? You know, you can consider this a follow-up to Season 1, Episode 47. That was a special episode about love. And here's the answer. No, a person who is emotionally unhealthy does not have a chance to experience authentic, authentic love, even temporarily, let alone long-lasting love. The good news is that emotional disorders like borderline personality disorder are entirely curable. Why? Because they're founded on learned misconceptions. Sometimes very subtle learned misconceptions. So there's no need for anybody to be doomed to a life without love. People get all bent out of shape When I talk about the fact that if you're emotionally unhealthy, you can't experience genuine love. But in that episode that I just mentioned, episode 47 of this podcast, you know, I explained why that is. The very basis of emotional unhealth, the very foundation it's built on, makes things like authentic love impossible. I realize there will be people such as experts and others who are actually living with borderline personality disorder who will vehemently object to what I've just told you, but they're full of baloney. First of all, they have a distorted, inaccurate definition of what love is, which is why it's necessary for me to constantly categorize the love I talk about as genuine or authentic. I shouldn't have to do this at all because it's redundant. Either love is authentic or it's not love. It's something else, right? but the broad popular misconceptions about what love is and the professional community's failure as a group to accurately educate their patient population has made this redundancy necessary for communicating the accuracies that I'm trying to communicate. Feeling strong emotions for somebody in itself is not evidence of authentic love. Let me say that again. Feeling strong emotions for somebody is not in itself evidence of authentic love. As in episode 47, let me repeat that love is not just a feeling. It's a quality. As a quality, it has to fit certain requirements. It has to meet certain requirements. Folks with borderline personality disorder, undoubtedly feel a strong approximation of romantic love. But this is not authentic love. The same can be said for empathy. There are multitudes of folks with borderline personality disorder who will swear until they're blue in the face that they're the most empathetic people on the face of the planet. In fact, many consider themselves empaths. But what they feel is not empathy. Why not? Because the very nature of borderline personality disorder or emotional unhealth, what what it is, the cause at the root of it all, makes genuine empathy a complete and total impossibility, just like with authentic love. You know, just like an orange, you know, the fruit can be described in concrete terms. It's the color orange, it grows on a tree, it has a stem, it has a peel, it's sweet, they contain a lot of vitamin C, the inside separated into segments, Love can be described in concrete terms. So think about that for a minute. Love fits a concrete set of requirements always. So when your idea of love fails to meet these requirements, it means that what you're experiencing is not love. It's something else. Now, what happens When somebody brings you an apple and insists that it's an orange, you know, the apple also has a skin. It also grows on a tree. It's also sweet. In many ways, it resembles an orange. Regardless, the apple's approximation to an orange does not make the apple an orange. It's not that love behaves a certain way only sometimes. Or that it only has to match most of the characteristics required to be called authentic love. Or that love behaves differently in some relationships than others. No, no, and no. I could list off a hundred different aspects of love here. But rather than do that, and in the interest of simplicity and of maintaining focus on the most relevant points here, I will instead say this. Love behaves healthfully all the time. Why? Because genuine love is inherently rooted in emotional health. Therefore, there is no other possibility except for love to behave in emotionally healthy ways, always. When one's idea of love behaves in ways that are contrary to to what genuine love inherently is, it doesn't mean that you love that person but you just slipped. Or that you love that person but you just temporarily forgot. Or that your feelings are true love while your behaviors are something different and unrelated. No. If there's one topic that people have the most difficulty understanding, among all of the complex topics that I address on a regular basis, it's this one. Love, music videos, books, movies, poetry, and Disney movies have not helped. Almost every one of these things are rife with examples of emotional unhealth, of distorted approximation. Turn on the radio now and listen to any song about love, and I can guarantee with almost total certainty that the lyrics will describe profound emotionally unhealthy concepts of what love supposedly is it's the rare individual who truly has an accurate view of what genuine love is and what it's not and why people who exist on distorted emotional foundations find what they believe is love and they feel strong emotions And these strong emotions convince them that what they're experiencing is genuine love, when it most certainly is not. In fact, I'm utterly convinced that uh, this is the overwhelming norm rather than the exception. The problem in convincing people otherwise is that because they've never experienced genuine love, they have nothing against which to contrast their personal experiences with what they are certain is love but is not. I'll give you the personal example of my father, who likely has narcissistic personality disorder. Naturally, we're not talking about romantic love here, but the principle of genuine love nonetheless. My dad fed me as I was growing up. He put a roof over my head. He bought me toys. He took me fishing. He said nice things to me sometimes. We went mushroom hunting in the woods every spring. He let me drive his pickup truck under his supervision on the back roads when I was still in grade school. And he humiliated me in front of others. He held nice things he had done for me over my head later when he was angry to remind me just how much in his debt I was and to explain why his abuse was acceptable. He stressed the idea that the fact I had a bed to sleep in at night was an undeserved kindness on his part that he was extending me. He disregarded my feelings. He was still beating me physically, often in front of others for added humiliation, when I was in my late teens for the most minor of offenses. He would get angry at me and punish me anytime my opinions did not align with his opinions. He treated me as a piece of inanimate property there to enhance his life, but he did not treat me with the value of an independent human being with my own feelings, thoughts, and emotional needs. If you asked my father today, or if you had asked him even then, he would swear that he loves his kids. What do you think? Did my dad genuinely love me? Well, I can tell you with no vagueness or uncertainty that my dad does not know what love is. Genuine love does not allow at all for most of the things I just described. The good parts do not balance out the bad parts so that suddenly the apple is an orange. If my father were to take the steps necessary to recover from his emotional unhealth, the factors involved that are blocking him from the ability to experience and know genuine love could be lifted. That obstruction would no longer exist. Suddenly, he'd be able to experience genuine love. And do you know what this would mean for him when he would look back at what he once believed was love? Of course, he would see just how far removed from genuine love his unhealthy ideas of love actually were. He'd probably be overcome with shame. His approximation of love, no matter how powerfully he wants to believe it is love, based on what he feels, because, you know, he's never had the genuine thing to compare it to, is not the same as what genuine love is or anywhere near as comparative in value. Genuine love is not defined just by strong feelings, by what one feels strongly. Rather, it's born of strong feelings and powerful, emotionally healthy principles. It's a quality. And the quality gives birth to feelings. And the feelings, in turn, enforce the quality. Therefore, as a quality, love always behaves certain ways and never behaves other ways. This is what genuine love is. In my dad's case, the nice things he did for me were never for me. He did them for himself, for how they made him feel about himself. You see? This isn't love. Love is self-sacrificing and altruistic. I don't have to use my father as an example. I can use myself as an example as well. The advantage I have is that I am now recovered from borderline personality disorder. I lived with the disorder unaware for the first 37 years of my life. Believe me, I felt that artificial love that other emotionally unhealthy people experience and swears true, but they don't know what they're talking about. Their notions are founded on ignorance because their emotional disorder is obstructing them from ever experiencing the real thing in order to have something authentic to compare to the counterfeit. But the behaviors, the patterns of their relationships are all the evidence that is necessary to determine that the love they think they feel is a mere inferior. Unhealthy approximation of the real thing. You got that? The behaviors and the patterns of the relationship are all you need to see to know if something's real love or not. The feelings have nothing to do with it. If you're in a relationship, you just look at how the relationship is. How you treat each other. How you talk to each other. The respect or lack of respect the dignity or lack of dignity in your dealings with each other. Love always behaves certain ways and never behaves other ways. These identifying features do not exist simply so that people can go through and superficially attempt to imitate each thing and then say, well, look, my love's real. No, the identifying features describe what love inherently is. So that people can identify whether their concept of love is genuine or not. Then, if their idea of love doesn't fit the description, their job is to fix the problem at the root. At the root, not some superficial behavioral trick. Oh well, I need to. I only can only speak nice to her, all the time, because. That's what love supposedly does. So I'm just going to force myself to talk nice to her all the time. Identify why you're not talking nice to her. What is it that's causing you to not talk nice to her in the first place? Identify that. Root it out. Fix it. Then you know what will happen? You will, as a natural result, talk nice to her. So the answer to the original question is unquestionably and arguably no. A person with borderline personality disorder, a person who's emotionally unhealthy, cannot experience genuine love. It's impossible. The very nature of the disorder itself means it is impossible. Therefore, the remedy, and the reason why this discussion shouldn't disappoint you or discourage you, is that there's a remedy. The remedy is to do the work to rid oneself of emotional unhealth so that one can finally experience what genuine love is and help others to understand the principles involved as well. No reason to get discouraged. Instead, there's a reason to be happy and excited about the possibility of getting this behind you. And for those of you who are parents and you think, oh, my God, I don't love my kids. Don't think like that. It's obvious that you care very greatly for your kids. But profound care still can't compete with love. And love is the objective, right? That's the goal. You want to be able to experience the real thing. So I'm not saying you don't care about your kids. (laughs) You do care about your kids. And now... We can take it up a notch. We can we can strive to get this emotional unhealth behind you so that you can experience the genuine love and demonstrate that genuine love for them. Now, a new segment on the show I'm going to try to incorporate into each episode is something I'm going to call the encouraging finale. Are you ready? legendary American film actor, John Wayne. Do you know what his tombstone has written on it? Well, it's a memorable quote by John Wayne himself from an interview he gave a magazine in 1971, and I thought you'd enjoy it. Something those of you who are working so hard every day to eliminate the causes of your emotional unhealth can jot down. And make a note of and refer back to every once in a while. The quote on John Wayne's tombstone Tomorrow is the most important thing in life. Comes into us at midnight very clean. It's perfect when it arrives. And it puts itself in our hands. It hopes we've learned something from yesterday. get excited with a clean, fresh blank sheet of paper that's put down in front of me. It's sitting there waiting for me to fill it with any type of drawings and doodles that I can dream up. When you're struggling and you feel like you've really screwed the pooch and had a bad day, that you gave in to a lot of emotionally unhealthy behaviors, remind yourself that after a good night's sleep, get a brand new chance to try again. So remember, you're going to fail in this process. Allow yourself that. Tell yourself it's okay and pat yourself on the back. Then remember what John Wayne said, you get to try again tomorrow.